0: you have a family like this, you end up always being drawn back into the drama. And in my family, there was drama after drama after drama. It was constant.
1: Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm Pamela Hensley. And on the show today, the translator and writer Neil Smith describes how, when he first began writing, there was one thing he was sure of. He didn't want to write autofiction. But his childhood was the kind that haunted him. And eventually, he had to turn tragedy into art. As a kid, Neil knew there was something wrong at home. When he discovered the secret at the heart of it, his view of family was shattered forever. Still a teenager, he moved to Quebec on his own, put himself through school, and began to work as a translator. Yet the drama wasn't over, and from a distance he watched as his family fell apart. Now an award-winning author, and at work on his third novel, Neil joins me to talk in his typically candid manner about a dysfunctional childhood, sympathetic monsters, and how, in his novel Jones, he was finally able to write about himself. Just a warning, we talk about sexual abuse and suicide in this episode, and if you need support, I encourage you to contact a crisis centre in your area. Neil, you were born in Montreal, but your family moved around a lot when you were when you were a kid. Why did you move so often?
0: We moved a lot because my father kept losing his jobs. (laughs) He he worked as um, a machinist. When he got what would try to get a new job in that field, we'd often have to move across the country. Um, So we lived in Boston, we lived in Salt Lake City, and we lived in Chicago.
1: This was after you left Montreal.
0: That's right. And even in Massachusetts, around Boston, we lived, I think, in three different places.
1: And did you like moving?
0: No, I hated it, actually. It was very hard, obviously, to make friends because we were always uprooted all the time. I was always the new kid in class. I never had the right accent Haircut, clothes. So I think I found refuge in books. I read a lot, as did my older sister. And I tried to imitate the accent of the people around me, but by the time I got it down pat, like the Boston accent, we were moving to Salt Lake City, so I could no longer say, Pack the car. That's pretty good. And in Salt Lake City, my my family is not Mormon, so we are really outcast. Everyone in my school was, I would say, like 90% of the kids were Mormon. And when they asked me whether I was Mormon, I had to fudge the facts by saying that I was Canadian. That was my way of getting around it. But my parents are ex-Catholics, and they were atheists, really, which I could not tell the Mormons.
1: They'd be upset about that. <laughs>
0: yes. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be even more excluded than I already was.
1: So you said your older sister you had a brother and sister?
0: I had I had an older brother, an older sister and a younger brother.
1: All right. And what was your relationship like? Were you close as kids?
0: We were close as kids. Yes, we were close as kids because we had to depend on each other. My sister and my older brother left home fairly early. He was quite a bit older than me to join the army but he was also very much into drugs and he got kicked out of the army and he got expelled from the country uh back to Canada and he was no longer able to return to the United States uh we continued moving on with the family to different places
1: so so you did not you did not have a uh a happy childhood?
0: No, I would. No, it was very, very dysfunctional, and my parents were quite abusive. Um, my father was sexually abusive, and that sort of formed the idea for my latest novel, Jones. I wanted to explore that idea in a way that maybe hadn't been done before, and I wanted to do it in a way that was real, well, was really that reflected these situations and why, why children stay enamored of those parents despite the abuse.
1: I want to talk about uh, Jones a little later in more detail, uh, because you've described it as 75% true. That's um, right. Which is pretty incredible. And the character, based on you, I guess, Eli Jones— uh, he moves back to Montreal when he's still a teenager. Uh, th- that's what happened in real life? You came back, you lived with relatives? or
0: I came back to Quebec when I was a teenager. I lived in Quebec City originally before I came back to Montreal. It was a way for me to distance myself from my family. Definitely.
1: You had extended family in Quebec, or how did you live? Yes,
0: uh, I have an extended family in Quebec. Uh, My my parents were born here and my grandparents were from here, so the whole family was in Quebec. I got a job. I, I didn't really have any money from my parents, but I got a job teaching francophones to speak English. There was a government program at the time, and I remember it. It paid $14 an hour, which was, was fantastic for a 17- a or 18-year-old kid. And I paid my university and my studies using that money, and I got grants as well uh, from the government to pay for my studies.
1: And what about your siblings? Your older brother was already back here.
0: That's right. My older brother came back. My sister stayed in Chicago for a while. She was in... Um, in a, an institution in a psychiatric institution for a bit and but she ended up following my parents back as well okay and my younger brother stayed with my parents
1: and and were you in touch with them
0: I was in touch with them yeah I would go I would go for summers maybe for a, a visit it became very difficult though because by this time I uh, I knew about the sexual abuse. My father was sexually abusive toward my sister. She was having breakdowns. He was having breakdowns. My older brother was heavily into drugs, into heroin. Um, He became addicted to heroin through an uncle of mine, which comes up in the book, too. So I tried to keep a distance from them. But whenever you have a family like this, you end up always being drawn back into the drama. And in my family, there was drama after drama after drama. It was constant. And um, no matter how I tried to stay apart from them, I was dragged back in. Uh, My sister became very ill. Um, She she tried to kill herself. She had tried to kill herself numerous times since the age of 14, which comes up in Jones. Uh, Those suicide attempts were real. Um the way that she passed away is real, too, in the book. It's exactly what happened. Um, so, you know, I had to deal with a lot of strife. And for me, Montreal became like a safe space for me because my immediate family was no longer here. Mm-hmm. And I felt safer here. Also... I was born here, and I felt really like it was my home. With them away, it really felt even more like my home. Uh, I started speaking French. Uh, I speak French fluently. I speak French at home. Um, And it was a way, I think, learning French, a second language, was a way of distancing myself further from Smith. Um, And uh, I became a translator. Uh, I went to school in translation. I started working as a translator freelance when I was about 22. And have been, you know, supporting myself ever since as a translator.
1: These years sound like they're fairly horrific. Did you have any support, any professional support? Does anyone help you with all the things you were going through?
0: Uh, did I see like a psychiatrist or, or, or a just psychologist, at even the time? a friend
1: or someone you could talk to? Yeah, I
0: had some people to talk to. It, when you grow up in a family that's so abusive, it. It's shameful. When I was a child, certainly I was ashamed of it, and people at school knew that things were something was going wrong uh, because of my siblings and how they were acting. But I was so ashamed of it that I couldn't really talk to anybody openly. I remember at at one point a a teacher came to me to say that he thought that something was seriously going on, and I just couldn't talk to him about it. Um, It was shortly. It was around the time when my brother died. Um, But teachers were supportive in the fact that I had an ability to write, and I was also artistic, and they pushed me in that direction. And uh, that ended up being what I concentrated on once I got out of school. With Jones, the, the, the goal of that book was really to create art out of tragedy, And I thought if I could make this story into something that was grabbing to people and that people could sympathize with and could make them laugh as well, it was really important for me to make it funny despite the content. It
1: is funny in (laughs) spots. I I
0: really wanted to emphasize that because also it's a tribute to my sister. And my sister was very funny and I thought it would be a betrayal of her life if it was overly earnest.
1: about translating how, how do you find translating jobs and what is it what does it look like
0: when i was in my 20s i would accept anything that came along right. just to make some money okay. so i did crazy stuff um like brochures on cockroach uh, <laughs> control that type of thing which i, re- I still remember vividly because the illustrations of the cockroaches were so well done um, i I ended up working a lot with museums and the planetarium, the biodome, the insectarium. They were really fun contracts. As the years went by, I became a little more selective. I worked for Radio Canada as well. I did documentaries for them. I subtitled documentaries. And one of those documentaries was on uh, premature babies, and it became a story uh, in my first book. So I used some of that material to, to write as well. It inspired me to write.
1: So um, it wasn't literary at the start, it was no. commercial, and then it did commercial. It, when did it become literary?
0: The literary stuff was more recent. It was after I started publishing my own fiction, because it pays so poorly, oh. and as a, when I was in my 20s, I needed to make money to live. By the time I got into my 30s, I was starting to look at literary translation and taking some projects on. I would do short stories. I didn't want to take on a full novel because I didn't have a time, and I also was working on my own novels by this time, but when when I finished publishing Boo, the second book, I had some time and I decided to go after a full length piece. And I came across La Deesse des Mouchasfeurs, which had just come out and was starting to make a splash in French. And I tracked down a publisher for it in English.
1: You translate French to English. Do you ever right. go the other way?
0: I sometimes do for clients. I do shorter stuff, but I don't think I would ever take on a full length piece. I, my own books are translated into French, and I don't do them. I would never want to redo my own <laughs> books uh, after spending so much time on them in English. Um, no, that would be a nightmare. Yeah.
1: If you are a writer who is an anglophone and the book is going to be translated into French, how do you how do you know when it's right? How do you judge the translation? Yeah,
0: I really love going over the translations of my books, and I go over them line by line okay. to make sure that the translators have understood the, the English text. Not really to find mistakes, more so, also it's more like I learn so much from my literary translators. It's so instructive to see what the translators decide to drop, the way that they adapt, say, plays on words uh, jokes. I'm now working on another novel uh, by uh, Jean-Philippe Barry Guérard. It's called Haute Démolition de in French, and it's all about stand-up comics. And in English, I really pulled away from the title. In English, we're going to call it You Crushed It because it's something that you say to stand-up comics when they come off stage and they've done quite well. The book is also written in the second person, so it's important to have a you in there. And the the main character ends up crushing everyone around him because he's so much of a narcissist and so uh, blessé, so uh, hurt that he destroys everything around him. So I think that you crushed it really captures the essence of the novel well.
1: support yourself for a number of years as a translator. And one day you just decide you're going to sign up for a creative writing class. I mean, you describe it as, a, it might have been a yoga class, I think you said, just uh, something to do. Was yeah. it really that random?
0: It was fairly random. I needed something new to do. And eventually, because I love reading so much and books kept me going as a kid, I thought that I would try to write a short story. And I wrote a couple of them. And then I took a Writers Federation class uh, with Connie Barnes-Rose. And she really encouraged me to start sending the, the pieces out to magazines. And they all were published. So I thought, well, maybe... I'm not so bad at this. Maybe it is something I could pursue. But even at that point, it wasn't serious. It was. It only became serious, I would say. Some of the stories were um, made into the Journey Prize Anthology, which is a sort of a best of Canadian fiction anthology that comes out each year. And at this point, uh, editors and publishers were writing to me to ask me if I had a full collection. So I contacted an agent that a friend of mine knew dean cook and uh, he signed me up so, so
1: this is was, not normal though is no, it, I mean, it <laughs> like within five years you'd had three of them pub- nominated for the journey prize yeah that's that's yeah. very unusual
0: yeah i think so i did start later had i started in my 20s probably i would not have published my first couple of stories i think a lot of people start in their 20s and they throw stuff away right I think by the time I was in my 30s, I had spent enough time writing with translation that I knew how to structure a sentence and a paragraph, and uh, eventually uh, learned how to create plot.
1: So. Bang crunch. It won the best book of the year by Washington Post and Globe and Mail, or one of the best books yes. of the year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the McCausland First Book Prize, and it was a finalist for the Hugh McClellan. So these are pretty incredible for a first book. Did it change how you saw yourself?
0: Yeah, it made me feel like I was a, a real writer at this point, I think, uh, because this was supposed to be a hobby that I just did on the side uh, when I had free time from translation, and then having the book come out and, and having it become a, a bestseller in Canada uh, sort of made me realize, you know, my, I should continue <laughs> writing. <laughs> I've got this I hidden guess. talent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 tough. It's it's tough to write. I, it's never been. I would say it's ever been easy to write novels and and short stories. I was lucky and I got them published, but uh, it takes perseverance, you know, to sit down every day and work on a story. You have to be completely obsessed with it, I think. You are. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I get obsessed. I'm working on a new novel at the moment, and I think about it all the time. And I think if I didn't have this obsession with these ideas, then I would never finish a book. And I'm already a little OCD, (laughs) as one could figure out reading Jones. So if I latch onto an idea that I really love, uh, I know that I'll see it through. I think that certain people who try writing fail at it because they don't have the perseverance. They might be really talented, too. I remember when I was in my 20s meeting people who I thought could really write well, but they gave up too quickly because they just didn't want to persevere with it.
1: It takes a long time. There's no return for Mm -hmm. a long time. Yes.
0: You write these books, you have no idea whether they'll sell, uh, whether the agent will reject them, or the publisher will reject them, the editor will reject them. So you have to really. Do it for yourself too, and it's it's hard to make your a uh, living, obviously, off only writing.
1: Yeah, in 2013, Alice Munro won the Nobel Prize, and and all of a sudden, it was okay to just be a, a short story writer. It wasn't practice for uh, for a novel, and you wanted to write your novels. Had, had you always planned that from when you started writing?
0: I remember when I went to meet with the publishers about Bankrunt, they all asked me what the novel was going to be. Had I started with a novel, I don't think they would have asked me what the short story collection was going to be. So I knew that it was going in that direction, that most publishers Unless you're Alice Monroe or George Saunders, they allow you one book of short stories, and then you have to move on to novels. Um, Yes, and particularly in the francophone side, my publisher, Édition Alto, they tend not to do short stories. They did do mine, but it's like an exception. They did Heather O'Neill's story collection as well, but... They're very vocal about not wanting short stories. So I knew that I would have to move on to novels. It was a challenge I wanted to do anyways. With my books so far, you've read the three of them. I tried to make them quite different. They're different, very different creatures. And the the fourth one also will be very different.
1: And I've read that you started a novel, you shelved it, and then you and then you started again. So yes. Can you tell me a bit about that? Because that seems like a, a very important part of the process.
0: Yes, I think so. I shelved a novel that I had started off with an idea of a heaven for atheists, uh, where atheists would go when they die. Um, that evolved. The first draft, I more or less shelved because it, I came up with a character during the first draft that became the main character of Boo. Oliver. Oliver. Right. Dalrymple, and I love that character so much that in the second draft. I let him take over, and it became his story instead of the atheist story. So, it became so he cont- wasn't
1: the main character initially.
0: No, I dropped. I mean, often a second draft is radically changed. In this case, it was radically changed, as opposed to Jones, where the first draft stayed almost exactly how the, the book looks now. There were very few changes. But Boo, uh, the first draft, I, I didn't really know how to write a novel, and I was I was meandering far too much. By the time I got to Boo, started writing the, the, the actual manuscript for Boo, and had his voice in my head telling me what to say, uh, that went very smoothly. So I'm hoping that I won't uh, make too many more faux pas and throw stuff out. But it's a, it's a hurdle. It's a, you know, it's a. It's a learning process, yeah, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think I I would not have written a novel, I think, if I not had not made a few mistakes along the way.
1: And you had to teach yourself, because other than the workshop, you had not really had any training in this. No. No.
0: No, I never studied literature. I only studied translation.
1: So in 2015, you published the book called Boo, and this is about a, a boy, Oliver, who's been shot at school, and he finds himself in the afterlife. I'm guessing there's some, some of the Utah experience in that,
0: yeah, maybe. But of course, B- Boo is a fantastic story. It's about a fake heaven where 13-year-old Americans go when they die. And it's an adventure story and a mystery. Uh, it's really a tribute to all the the books I read when I was 13 that helped me survive the age of 13 and survive my my family. And I wanted to pay tribute to all those great books, uh, like the Hardy Boys, for example. Right. In this fake heaven, all the parks and the, the the museums and the libraries all are named after characters from those books that I read as a kid.
1: That's a nice way to to show mm-hmm. a tribute. Yeah. But it is at the core of it. Well, not at the core, but I guess uh, the inciting incident is, is the shooting. Right. A- and this is a shooting in a school. And um, it, it came up in a short story also, in your story called Scrapbook, and then you return to it again in Jones, um, is... is
0: Why? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Uh, simple answer. I was at the Université de Montréal the night of the shootings uh, when the 14 women were killed. And it was a huge event in, in Montreal and really Colored my perception of violence and uh, violence against women, so it comes up over and over in my in my stories. In Boo Too, I wanted to to take the lightness of children's books and the darkness of reality and bring those two together to see what would happen. So I wanted to explore the the those two uh, cold front and and hot front. Uh, bumping up against each other.
1: Mm. Well, you to capture it quite well, I, I found. Jones is your second novel, your third book. Was it always going to be a novel, or was there ever a time when you thought it might be a memoir?
0: It was never going to be a memoir, because I like making stuff up too much. And honestly, because I was trying to depict my own life, I needed a bit of a distance from what actually happened. And I thought it would be easier to create these characters if they were only, say, 75% me, 75% my sister, 75% my parents. That way, when I thought of the characters, I didn't picture my actual family in my head. I pictured like actors who are hired to portray us mm-hmm. that look sort of like us, but not exactly. And it made it easier to, for me to write about these harrowing incidents that they go through. So no. And even when I spoke to my agent the first time and I told him I was going to write this, he said to me, I don't think you should do a memoir. I also told him at the time that I wanted it to be funny. And he agreed, so.
1: He, he didn't wonder how that was going to
0: happen. He did wonder how <laughs> it would happen. But he agreed with that I, I could have that liberty to make it funny despite the, the dark content
1: but you knew you would be talking about it and you would be going on a book tour. And so did it scare you a little bit for this information to be public?
0: Yeah, it scared me beforehand, but once the book came out, I wasn't scared anymore. I think I did my first interview about it and it was just easy to talk about. And the way that I could talk about it with a psychologist, for example, not to make you into my doctor. (laughs) No, by this time I was ready, and for so long, As a child and as a young adult, I had not shared this information because it was so shameful. And once it was out there, sort of the shame lifted. And I thought it was important because it's a topic that very few people openly speak about. So I thought it was important or someone who lived through it to talk about it openly. Because I sometimes find in movies and in books that when the topic comes up, it doesn't reflect reality. Mm. And I wanted the book to reflect what actually happens in a family like this.
1: I found it interesting how the father that you call Pal, kind of ironically, I suppose, you gave him the experience of war in Korea as something to blame his transgressions on. Is that why you did it? And and was there something that your own father had similarly that he could blame?
0: Yes. My father was uh, in the Korean War and did use that. And I I think in my book, I don't want it to be given as an excuse for what he did, because I don't see it that way with my own father, but I wanted to understand what would push someone to do this. Uh, there's a few references in Jones, too, about the father possibly being molested himself, uh, although that's never made 100% certain, but that those excuses, too, uh, were made. But it doesn't negate what he did, but it helps maybe Eli and me to understand a reason for this behavior.
1: I'm curious about the reaction from readers. Were you at all concerned about making him too sympathetic? Or do people recognize his right. kind of humanity? Or
0: Maybe they do. I think a lot of people still think he's a monster, though. Yeah. But other people find him a little bit more sympathetic than most sexual abusers are portrayed as in novels.
1: I I worried when I was reading it that it could have been difficult to even write a sympathetic character. Right,
0: definitely. I wanted the parents in the book to be shown as having a monstrous side and a sympathetic side. I think my agent at one point told me he found the mother really funny in the book. She smokes all the time. She's awful, though. She's an awful... But she's... Brassy the brassy broad the brassy broad yeah and that's how sort of my mother came across so i wanted that to reflect reality as well that she would be seen as having being totally narcissistic and and and, and not really caring so much about her children but be portrayed as a human and not as a as a 100% a monster it's a it's a risky portrayal, but I thought it it was a true one, and I wanted the book to be true.
1: There comes a point in the book when the only thing left for Eli to do is expose his father's crimes, Mm -hmm. and by writing this book, you basically do it for real. That's right. Yeah. How did it feel?
0: And by this time, my parents had both passed away, and that gave me the liberty to do this, I think. Uh, I had seen a psychologist as well who said, look, you're a writer, why are you not writing about this? So I decided to do it, and it it was liberating, and it was cathartic. Originally, when I started writing, I thought I would never write about myself. I I liked the freedom of making stuff up. You initially
1: said you didn't like autobiographies.
0: No, no, I thought... I wanted my writing to be an ex- ex- escapist for me. So writing Jones originally, I thought, oh, this is, this is contrary really to what I want to do with my writing. I wanted the, the third book to be completely different from Boo, and I thought, okay, I'll try it. I'll see what it's like to write about myself, to try to capture someone who's more or less like me and more or less like my sister. And in a way, I wanted it to be a tribute to her, to, Gale, to my sister, Gail Smith. So I was very happy with the results. And it's the book that went the fastest. I, I wrote it in about a year, a little bit. It had very, very little editing done on the on it. So what you see is more or less the first draft. I'll probably never be able to write a book like that again. Uh, I sort of knew the plot ahead of time. It doesn't reflect exactly what happened. I moved stuff around uh, to, to create an, an arc. Of, For the book. Uh, Is it a
1: linear process for you when you write?
0: Usually it is. I I tend to, like Eli, have black notebooks in which I take a lot of notes uh, and develop characters. That part is less linear. I can jump around and it doesn't have to be perfect. Once I get on this computer, however, and start writing the chapters, that I go linearly from chapter one, two, three and keep going chronologically. And I edit as I go along. Mm. Like, I started a new uh, novel, it's called, so far, the working title is Red Rover, Bed Rover, and I've written two of the chapters, and I heavily edit them before I go on to, like, say, chapter three.
1: So by the time you're done, you're ready to hand it over to your
0: agent? More or less, uh-huh.
1: yeah. And you've said that when you were initially starting with your short, short stories that you talked about an influence, and it was Barbara Gowdy.
0: Oh, yes. How did
1: you come across her work? And, uh... How did
0: I come across her book? I think the first book I read of hers was We So Seldom Look on Love, which mm-hmm. is her book of short stories. And I must have read that book like 50 times. It's such a great book. It's it probably is. my favorite book of short stories ever. And... I then, of course, read all of her novels. Over the years, I've read everything she's written. I'm a like a, a fan geek of hers. And I went to a reading that she did in Montreal. This was at the time that just came had just come out. And I was in the audience, and there was a QA and a and I got up to ask a question. And before I, the question came out of my mouth, she said, are you Neil Smith? And she had read Is my book. Right? And it was like the best oh, moment in my life. Oh, oh, oh I bet. And she really loved the book, and she was so encouraging. And after the after her talk, I, I went up to speak with her and had my book signed. And and she was just so encouraging, and, and has has been ever since. And I've run into her over the years at various events, and I just love that woman. Um, other big influences on me for the first book of short stories, I probably read like every major short story writer, and they all had an influence on me. I think. One of the, a couple of them that really stand out are George Saunders and Amy Bender, and maybe AM. Holmes as well, three American writers. Um, they to this day, I read everything they've written, I've bought all their books, and I continue buying their books. Uh, Otesha Moshfag is a, is a huge uh, influence on my writing. And uh, the, the book I'm working on now is inspired by Shirley Jackson, an American writer who died in 1965. I've become obsessed with her life and everything she's written, all her stories, her nonfiction, her essays. The, autobi- the um, biographies about her life. Um,
1: they're quite dark, aren't they? Oh, they're so just, dark. Yeah. And, uh,
0: that's what I love. <laughs> and she's funny, too. I find her stuff really funny. She wrote a book called um, The Sundial. It's about a, the end of the world, that this family all groups together in this mansion, and they wait they wait for the end of the world. But it's, it's screamingly funny in parts. So I love when, obviously, you know from my writing that I love the balance of darkness (laughs) and humor, and I love when writers do that well. So um, I'm trying to write a novel now inspired by her work. I've even read—I bought her books in French just to to read them in a different language.
1: See what other images come to mind or something, yeah. Yeah. In much of your writing, short stories as well as novels, there's straight, bisexual, and gender-ambiguous characters. Are you conscious of a, a character's sexuality when you start out writing them, or does it come as you're writing and the plot develops?
0: No one's ever asked me that question, well, That's great. I think in Jones, to go with the, the latest novel, I wanted the characters' sexuality to be fairly ambiguous as they're growing up, because that's what my sexuality was like, and my sister's as well. And nowadays... That's so normalized that I thought it would work well to show the kids nowadays that uh, they didn't invent this stuff, that uh, we were doing it back in the day. So I thought that that was important um, to capture. And I don't think Eli ever says, for example, I am gay or I am bi. He he says at one point, I'm nothing. (laughs) I think that when his father asks him. Um, With Boo, I think that character is so asexual, even at 13, I can't imagine him. He's very much um, almost Asperger's, although I don't come out and say that, not that people with Asperger's don't have a sexuality, but at 13, this kid is not really interested in either sex.
1: Well, what about one like uh, Green Fluorescent Protein? Right. That's more about uh, the, the, the character's sexuality. Yeah,
0: definitely. From the beginning, that story was going to be about their sexuality. Um, I wanted to explore that uh, using the metaphor of a of a fluorescent guinea pig, as one does. Um, so that was one of the first stories I wrote. And, um, yeah.
1: You write a lot about adolescence. I know, I know. It- I've
0: got to grow out of that, huh? I keep telling myself that.
1: But what, what draws you to adolescence particularly?
0: I think it's because it's the period of my life that I felt extremely creative, that I thought I could—I wanted to be an artist as well. And I did a lot of art, and I still do art on the side and photography. And it's it's the age, too, when your imagination knows no limits. As you get older, you sort of tamp down. Particularly, if, say, if you go into, I don't know, accounting or in medicine— the creative juices that you had, the imagination might not be not might have the liberty to, to flow in all directions. And I found when I was that age, when I was a child, and the fantastic was much more prevalent than it is when I got older. And since my writing has a fantastic element, I think that's why I'm drawn to that to childhood and adolescence. By the end of Jones, I think uh, Eli is. 29 or 30. I can't remember now. He's just about, yeah, he's becoming an adult finally. Maybe one day I will too.
1: (laughs) Well, let's wrap it up with a few questions just about being a writer in in Quebec. I mean, one question that I, I think is really seems obvious, you speak both languages, but you write in English. Are you, are you ever tempted to write in French?
0: Yes, I am tempted to write in French, because I find that uh, Québécois writers are so much overlooked that I feel like I have to join forces with them, the francophone writers here. They have a hard, much harder time getting their work out. They have a harder time getting it published in France, even. I spent a year and a half trying to find a publisher for Haute Démodition, the novel that, I'm, that I translate it, And from a couple of publishers, I got a response saying that English Canada is not interested in what French Canada likes. And it was heartbreaking. harsh. Yeah, really harsh. So... You know, there are a few publishers that are taking chances, but it's harder to, to get a publisher for... Th-
1: and yet you want to pursue this. <laughs> yes, I
0: know. Crazy, huh? Yes, and I find it heartbreaking, and I, I really want... Some of the stuff being done in, in French Canada is so magnificent that I want English Canada to see it. But, you know, Anglophones ha- don't have a problem reading Japanese novels in translation or Scandinavian novels in translation but they're less apt to read Quebecois novels in translation. I would oh, like maybe. that to change. I don't know how to yeah, do maybe it. maybe you
1: can do something about that. Yeah, that's Sorry. why I'm
0: trans. I've been translating a lot of short stories for magazines as well, and that's my little effort, too, to make English Canada discover French Canada.
1: So give us some names, then. Who, who's an underrated Québécois writer you want us to read?
0: Well, the first one I have to, of course, say Jean-Philippe Marie Guérin, okay. whose uh, novel Aux I just finished translating. Of uh, he's, he's 34 years old, he's, trans, he's published four novels, he's also an actor, he's also a playwright and a director. Um, two of his, his novels have been made into TV series, including the one I've, I've just finished translating. Um, in any other world, he should be well-known in English. In any other world, it would have been easy for me to find a publisher for this guy. His books are huge bestsellers here, Um, but it was really, really tough, far tougher than I expected. And at one point I almost gave up.
1: But is this on the reading public or the publishers?
0: I don't know. I think it might be both.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, where where do you recommend curling up for a, yeah, for if you have got a book?
0: I go all almost daily to Gamba Cafe Gamba. Uh-huh. It's on Park. There are actually two locations. There's one on Park and there's one on St. Vietar.
1: And get yourself a coffee and
0: I get myself a hot chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's See, really good. That's the adolescent in you coming I down, know right? <laughs> it's the sweetness. Sometimes I have two a day. I'm high on sugar. And sometimes they make a chocolat chaud froid. You can have a chocolat chaud glacé, which is nice as well when it's really hot out. So that's where I hang out, and I edit my stuff at uh, Olympico at night as well. I've been there. I haven't seen you. Yeah, (laughs) time. yeah, I go there at eleven from eleven to midnight. Mm -hmm. And you do your editing. I do my editing there. Wonderful. Yeah.
1: Well, I hope to run into you there. Yes. See you there. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much, Pamela. author and translator Neil Smith. His 2007 collection of short stories, Bang Crunch, was reprinted just this summer. Find it in all his books at Distilled Booksellers in Montreal and other fine bookstores everywhere. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for listening. Please make sure to follow us on your podcast app and to sign up for our newsletter on the website howiwrotethisthepodcast.com. Next week, join me as I talk to H. Nigel Thomas, author, poet, and community leader.